Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. My name's Catherine Carr, and this is season two of Relatively, the podcast all about potentially the longest relationships of your life. You know, Angela and I have never really disagreed in a major way politically, and that's because we have shared values and we come from a similar place. I'll be bringing siblings together to talk about the connections they have as adults, as well as what it was like growing up together. Well, my mum didn't know that we were twins until very late in her pregnancy. In this episode, we're talking to the Labour MPs, Angela Regal. And the family story is that she fainted when she found out. And Maria Eagle. The world was our oyster. We could do what we liked, but only if we worked hard at school. But I'll also talk to them separately to get a more private take on the relationship. She's both boots in. She's completely fearless if she sees injustice. You always had a best friend. You didn't have to compromise to make one. It's the way that I always saw it as a child, you know. And that that gives you a tremendous um, grounding and confidence. Brothers and sisters are never straightforward. I mean, in fact, we sound so alike that I once talked to my own answer phone thinking it was her. (laughs) <laughs> who'd answered the phone. <laughs> so you'll, you'll hear this when you talk to her. You won't be able to tell us apart. Might be a problem for this podcast, actually. It might be. <laughs> that was Angela, who together with Maria make up the first twins ever to sit in Parliament together. Angela, who's older by 15 minutes, was elected to the Labour Party in 1992 and Maria followed in 1997. In 2016, Angela made a bid to replace Jeremy Corbyn as Labour's leader. We talk about all of that, about growing your own, about beating the boys and the majesty of Barbara Castle. But we started with chess, a game their dad taught them and which they excelled at from a precociously young age, as Angela explains. He taught himself to play chess. And then he taught us to play because he wanted somebody to play. And as soon as we started beating him very quickly, he took us to the nearest chess club when we were eight. I mean, our chess playing brought out some differences in our personalities, the kind of games you play, how you cope with, in competition, how you cope with pressure, how you cope with situations. Mm. And she was very determined. She's very determined, knows what she wants. Whenever Angela really had to win, and we used to play for Lancashire in British Championships and things like that, Mm. and when she really, really had to win, she usually would, almost always would, whereas sometimes I would, you know, screw it up. (laughs) She hardly ever did that. Now, I remember my first chess tournament when I was eight. Maria and I decided we would enter different competitions because we didn't want to play each other. Mm. So I entered the Formby under 11 chess tournament and Maria entered the under 13s 
So there were no girls apart from us. That was the first thing we noticed. And then the second thing that happened was the little boy that sat opposite me just looked terrified and said, this can't be right. Girls don't play chess. <laughs> and I just had never, up until that moment, ever thought that the, that the world might be unfair for girls because I'd never been faced with that sort of attitude. And um, I wondered what on earth all the fuss was about. And he was very upset. And then I suddenly realised, I thought, oh, he doesn't want to lose to a girl. And so I beat him. And, I was just going to um, ask if you won. <laughs> I did win the tournament. And then I was given a Biggles book. And so those of you who are old enough who listen to this podcast will realise that that's a boy's prize. I was just going to say, they weren't expecting a girl at all. No. That's where my feminism was immediately born. We're, we're temperamentally quite some. I mean, we're, we're different people and we have different characters, but we're, our politics are quite similar. How would you describe her? What's her character like in, insofar as it's different to yours? Oh, well, she's very tough. Um, she's very focused and determined. She's probably um, more rigorous than I am um she she made a very good lawyer I never studied the law for example I don't think she lost a case when she was practicing um and she's both boots in she's completely fearless if she sees injustice in a way that I might be slightly more calculating but she's more instinctual like that and it's what I've always admired about her she described your legal career and said you just incredibly focused and never lost a case. She talked with great admiration about your tenacity. No, I didn't lose contested cases. No, that's true. I, I'm not saying I didn't take any risks with them, but you know, part of, of legal decision-making is taking cases that you've got a good chance of winning, not, not stringing people along if you can't win, but then using strategies to make sure you maximise the chance of winning. You know, mm. It's quite like chess in that way, or politics for that matter. Although I think there's fewer rules in politics and more uncertainty. No, I mean, I think that we're, we're both very proud of each other. We have done this odd thing in that we've, we've got similar interests and we've pursued similar careers. But um, I'm very proud of her and, and I know she's proud of me. Does that um, sort of sustain you? Yes. I mean, certainly it always did. At school, when we we weren't exactly, you know, we were slightly oddly regarded at school because we were obviously twins. We were always top of the school in terms of examination results and things like that. Mm. So we were regarded as somewhat other, I think. Um, But we didn't mind too much because we had each other. So there was that kind of twin togetherness thing going on. Um, Tell me a little bit about home life when you were quite small. What was it like in your household? We were always together, you know, so you were never on your own. Um, and, and that was a thing where the oldest in the family, kids, um, mm. and but there were always two of us and we were the same age to all intents and purposes. And so we always had somebody to play with, always, you know, fun and happy. I was born first, uh, 15 minutes early, something that was very important to me when I was growing up, but I'm slightly embarrassed about now. I was going to say, did you play on that? Did you yeah, use it yeah, as a trump I, card? Yes, we had bunk beds and I always insisted on having the top 
because I had the choice. So it's, uh, and presumably other obnoxious things that Maria remembers. But uh, anyway, there you are. Yes, she gave it a lot of importance when we were very young, <laughs> and I didn't have I didn't have an argument that would counteract it in logical reality because I am in fact fifteen minutes younger than her according to my mother. So that was a game set and match, really. How maddening. <laughs> it was very maddening. It meant I got the, uh, she got the top bunk, I got the bottom bunk, or things like that, you know. And what kind of atmosphere was there in the house? Was it a house full of chat or music or laughter or games or work or what was the vibe? Yeah, it was certainly music and chat and fun, yeah. Uh, some, some of my earliest memories, actually, of, of the Beatles... I was an original Beatles fan, even though I was only, you know, a toddler. My dad used to have a uh, a record player and he used to play play Beatles tracks when we were very young. So there was always a bit of music around. Was it true, Angela, that your dad allowed you, I could even probably ask him, but was it true that he allowed you to dig up the back garden and grow a vegetable patch at a certain point? Yes. I mean, when I was growing up, I had, I suppose they'd have called it a fussy stomach. I had to avoid fried foods and things like that so that I didn't get stomachache. And so this all got into getting interested in growing my own veg. We had quite a big back garden, so I dug most of it up and turned it into a kind of um, rotating sort of agricultural experiment. What did you grow? I grew potatoes. They're pretty back-breaking things to grow. I grew brassicas. Um, I had a, an unfortunate start with tomatoes. Um, <laughs> they're trickier because, than they seem. <laughs> well, especially when you plant chrysanthemums because you think they're tomatoes. They're, ve- they're, they're very, very, very similar leaves. Um, the thing that I was no good at, that I couldn't really grow at all, I, I, I failed to grow mushrooms. Rhubarb. Rhubarb, I grew a bit rhubarb. of rhubarb. I wasn't interested at all in growing vegetables. I seem to recall helping with a bit of the labour occasionally, but that was all. I I was not the brains behind the operation. I was in the middle of, you know, crop rotations and this, that and the other. (laughs) What went well together. Um, But but I suppose we were always also quite serious once the schoolwork started. Yeah. That was what was going to be my next question. What set you apart? Because there must have been lots of families with a record player playing the Beatles, but it strikes me that the Eagle household had a kind of extra ingredient. Yes, it was a wanting to achieve and seriousness and do something important kind of vibe, really. Um, And from an early age, you know, we had it drummed into us by my mother mainly, but my father would back her up on this, that the world was our oyster, we could do what we liked, but only if we worked hard at school and always sought to achieve and be interested. And so there was quite a drive towards that kind of thing, you know, aspiration really, I think. When I read about you two as sisters, I get this overwhelming impression of two girls and then women with an amazing sense of self-assurance and you've said that some of that comes from you know your twin but did it also come from your parents? Absolutely. Um, My mum and dad were both from poor backgrounds working class backgrounds in Sheffield and um, my mum was very clever. She passed her 11 plus Mm. and missed out going. She did try to go to the grammar school but her parents were too poor to afford the uniform 
She didn't have friends there. They teased her. She hated it. And basically looking back at it when we used to talk about it in the family, it was clear that they wanted the place for somebody that they thought was more deserving. And so she wasn't really helped and she couldn't stay there very easily. And when she left, that was kind of her chance at at getting out of uh, how her future was set out by her class position so she when she went to the local labor exchanges they were called then when she left school at 15 they said you're a factory girl and stuck her in a biscuit factory and so that kind of story was always very um present i'm sort of marvel at your mum anyway i don't mean this in any way that's patronizing but angela told me the story of her passing her 11 plus and um, not carrying on at grammar school for one reason or another and ending up as a factory girl. And what yeah. strikes me as incredible then about your mum is that, what you know, she could see way beyond that to a place where hard work could get you somewhere, where it hadn't for her. She sort of saw that as her failure, which was completely unfair. You know, oh. the odds were really stacked against her. And, and so she she took the view that, Although she'd missed out on a chance, there was no reason why we should. And, and and actually, it was quite motivational. She was very insistent that we weren't going to make the same mistake. She saw it as her, a problem that she'd had, which was completely ridiculous. But that's how she saw it. Mm. it I mean, you say it's ridiculous. Actually, it makes me feel quite heartbroken for her to, to think that she thought that. I know. I, I, it only really struck me you know, many years later, quite how much she blamed herself about that, when it obviously wasn't her fault. My dad, uh, who's still alive, was um, was very talented artist and still paints, and he wanted to go to art school, and his, his dad said, no, you've got to go and earn money. So he went into the print trade. And so there was always this tremendous view from them that they'd missed out on any opportunities or chances and they were completely determined that we would not do the same thing and so that was very very present in the family. Did that only ever come across as a positive thing or was it sometimes a bit much to bear? I think it was um, it was such a discourse in the family and so expected that it set us free to sort of aspire without even thinking about it to go to university when nobody in our family had ever been but you know occasionally if you wanted to be a bit more carefree it would probably have it was it was so internalized that I didn't you know that's where my work ethic and and sort of determination came from I'm sure it was the same for Maria and not just university but both of you to Oxford yes yes well you might as well aim high I mean, it's one of the things that got me involved in politics was I thought it was completely unfair that her abilities had been ignored because her family didn't see the importance of it and couldn't afford the uniform and all of the things that she needed to go to the school where she could aspire and, and, and make, make the best of her talents and, and that her whole life had been affected by that. Mm. Um, in fact, she later on in life, when we'd grown up a bit we persuaded her to go back to college and go back to university and, and she was studying when she got Ill, her final illness so she was making up for it herself oh, I didn't know that yeah yeah unfortunately she never quite graduated because she she died before she did but she was doing it yeah amazing. and we were all very proud of her yeah 
I was, I was going to say that and I was also going to say she must have been incredibly proud of you two when you got into Oxford and achieved at that level and then obviously carried on achieving but to get to university in the first place is pretty um, impressive. Yes she was, she was proud and, and I mean uh, it's one of my regrets actually that she never saw us elected, either of us elected to parliament, she she would have would not have been surprised actually <laughs> but my, my dad makes up for for the fact that she didn't see it because he's very proud of us both so and he's he's still there recording all the interviews and things like parents do <laughs> and I was going to ask like in between the first impulses of um sort of political thinking that might have come out of these stories about your parents thwarted opportunity and becoming you know elected members of parliament what sort of framework for getting involved in political thought was there in your family was it debated was it discussed well, we just in terms about of it? politics the whole time oh really absolutely the whole time and we would answer back at the tv if some tory was on who was spouting tory nonsense that we didn't agree with we'd um have a go at the tv the way our family was we shouted at the news we always read <laughs> newspapers from a really young age we were encouraged as children to have opinions we used to argue within the family, particularly my dad. We used to accuse him of always being a sort of person that he was always going on about how communism might work better. And we were like, oh, you're a, you know. <laughs> so we used to have all these arguments and nobody, our parents never said, oh, you cannot speak to me like that or have an opinion, mm. you know. And so we were always treated really like adults from that point of view. And that, that gives you a lot of confidence. I remember once... Uh, after I'd been elected a, a Labour Party member from Formby saying how he'd remembered when he was commuting up to Liverpool to work, seeing this striking blonde woman, who's obviously my mother, with these two little twins sitting in a, a, on the train arguing politics. And we were very little at the time and he'd thought how unusual that was. It was obviously us. <laughs> so we just talked about politics the whole time. We were also never told that girls didn't do that or girls ought to aspire to something lesser. In fact, the opposite. It sounded like your dad was a bit of a sort of feminist anyway. Still is. I mean, he he bought me a copy of Germaine Greer's Female Eunuch whenever it came out. And that was a very influential book for me because it was very polemical. And uh, then I got into reading feminist stuff as well as being in favour of equality you know my my big heroine in politics was um, Barbara Castle and what about sort of teenage Angela crushes um, and parties oh, and no. rebelling and no it didn't do much parties or uh, no crushes to be honest very busy doing chess that was took us away most weekends and I sort of had my sort of teenage time slightly later when I was about 18, 19, got into the pretenders, went round music, things like that. But I never mm. did the sort of crushes parties thing, really. I was too busy studying. And when did you know you were gay and when did that all become something that you could kind of enjoy and explore? Um I suppose I, if if you'd have gone into my teenage bedroom compared to my sister's, although we did share for many, many years because we didn't have spare bedrooms, all the stuff on my walls were women, looking back. 
and all and Maria had all sort of men and I had all women so I think the clues were there quite <laughs> quite early on um, but it, that side of me wasn't something that I was that you know I wanted to do other things before I before I sort of explored any of that I didn't feel a great need to uh, but probably, you know, very early 20s, probably. Mm. Was that ever an issue or was it just... No, never an, never an issue. Thank mm. goodness. My parents weren't, um, weren't prejudiced in any way like that. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Was there an acknowledgement that you were following your parents' politics or was there a very clear, um, you know, with your kids, there, there can be the point at which you sort of have to make it clear to them that this is your politics and they should make their own minds up. Was that a conversation that was had in your household or was well, it just out of the question? Um, yes, yes. I oh, know we were always encouraged to think for ourselves. Remember one of the biggest biggest political debates in the in the mid 60s when my sister and I were getting interested in politics was about comprehensive education mm. and that just seemed to be particularly about the kind of thing that had affected my parents and I mean if you if you started out from the view as we did that in education gave you opportunities and mattered then then how you got educational opportunity and how how you could get it without it depending on your parents income was tremendously a tremendously important debate. Mm. And so as the first twins ever in sort of modern day um, House of Parliament, what's it like having a twin who serves the same party as you when the party, all political parties, <laughs> end up sort of fragmented and divided and weaker and stronger? They go through all sorts of different iterations at all sorts of different times. But obviously your sister is a constant with those old family stories internalised the same as you. You must be able to communicate with the raise of an eyebrow what's it like to have that constant oh, yeah. ally in a ever shifting sort of political party and landscape it's quite useful actually it's something we always had uh in in any aspect of our lives was each other uh and so um you always had a best friend. You didn't have to compromise to make one. <laughs> it's the way that I always saw it as a child, you know. And that that gives you a tremendous um, grounding and confidence. You don't have to have any doubts about whether you're right or not. There's somebody you can talk it out with who understands you and understands the way you think. But the playground's not um, Westminster, although there may be some similarities some of the time. You know, Westminster's a different kettle of fish or pool of sharks or whatever you want to call it. Yes, but um, you go there with political values that are already formed. Mm. 
and, and ours were formed together many years before on the basis of our family experience and, and aspirations and the values of the Labour Party as we understood them as we were growing up. And those experiences are very similar. So there's a constant there. You know, Angela and I have never really fallen out or disagreed in a major way politically. Mm. Um, And that's because we have shared values and we come from a similar place. And we're we're, we're temperamentally quite similar. I mean, we're we're different people and we have different characters, but our politics are quite similar. So what I'm curious about is where the idea of actually being a career politician came from and how early that dawned on you as a real possibility, both of you. Because it's not, even if I ask my own children, I'm not sure that they've fully twigged that's something you can do and get paid money for. Well, you only had to see Barbara Castle, didn't you, to know you could, if you're a girl, do that. And she was on the telly the whole time in those days. We always, well, certainly I always wanted to do it, saw it as something that could be done from a very early age. And my parents used to always encourage us not to be feel limited. They would specifically tell us that just because you're a girl and some people think girls shouldn't do this, that or the other, you can do whatever you want. So it seemed if you wanted to improve things in the world, change the world for the better, then obviously you had to get involved in politics to change things so it was just obvious to me from a very early age actually and was it obvious to you from the same sort of early age or perhaps a bit later how you would measure your success as a politician or your success in that career and whether at your age now you sort of think you know life isn't black and white maybe there's some successes and some failures along the way but did you have an idea of what success would look like and has that changed I wanted to change the the world you know, just to make it better for everybody and to sort of pursue what I thought of as fairer outcomes. And uh, I never saw politics as a career in that sense. I didn't think paid job or anything. I just thought that's what I want to do. And I, I suppose as you get older and you live through experiences of being in government and seeing how difficult it is or trying to marshal change in in a way that uh, matters, you get a bit wiser about how you appraise whether you've done good things or not. And it's certainly more sophisticated view than I had as a five or six year old. (laughs) Um, You never make the impact you want in terms of being able to change everything because politics is is a collaborative thing and you're not it's not all about individual personal success it's a it's almost like it's a team thing an endeavor that you can only you know have a certain effect on Mm. I think getting into the place where you can have an impact was what I was focused on doing yeah, it's a necessary um, so but not sense, sufficient condition isn't it yeah exactly <laughs> and so in that sense and you just take it a step at a time you know becoming a minister then seeing what you can do having an uh, an aim to change something in the department that you're in to improve things you can't take a view that's more encompassing than that really mm. and what was it like when angela went for the leadership of the party it looks like on paper a bit of a departure from being sort of in tandem quite so much and she was then exposed in a way which i guess was new what was that like as her twin? It was it was quite hard for me because I wanted to be very supportive of her, 
but I wasn't sort of quite as focused as she was on on the day-to-day what was going on also I was debilitated at the time I'd broken my foot on the day of the uh, of the referendum and so I was for a few weeks was it pretty incapacitated Um, and that happened to coincide with when all that was going on and so my best role at the time was just just to try and be a um, you know an emotional support to her and I think she found it quite stressful as you would um it was a stressful time and and so I felt a bit useless not being able to help her as much as I would have liked I was going to say all you you said all that if you put that in you know air quotes that encompasses an awful lot of vitriol online and actually a death threat in actuality and all sorts of abuse that she put up with by putting herself forward yeah hideous and you know I mean she she's often had more of that than me partly because she's LGBT and and as the obviously the first out woman MP who wasn't um who wasn't outed as it were Mm. uh there was a whole element of of that kind of homophobic abuse that she's had to put up with that I've never had to put up with Mm. um People always say, oh, you're so similar. And and it's like, yeah, we're similar in many ways, but actually I'm not gay, you know. Mm. I'm not LGBT like her. That's quite a big difference. It wasn't an easy thing to do. and But, but it, it was... It, it seemed the right thing to do at the time. And, you know, it was a... a fairly astonishing experience, not least because of the... the massive amounts of abuse that came my way um, which was difficult to cope with but I, I like to think I did cope with it and I recovered from it reasonably. Mm. And were you aware at the time obviously your your poor sister with her broken foot was doing her best to kind of cheer you on from the sidelines and offer yes, of solace course. and encourage and Of course and obviously she had broken her foot trying to keep us in the European <laughs> Union and in fact you know she she had to come and stay with us um, because she couldn't get up the stairs to her flat so we were actually together during the most the most wild bit of that particular time but I was no use to it oh you were of course you were you were fantastic I couldn't do anything to help no she was she was a great (laughs) use and she was a great solace and she understood and of course the house was under siege with the media outside and you know I mean, I was being bombarded with um, abuse across all social media outlets. But these experiences are, you have to cope with them in life, you know. And I did, but um, I did with the help of and both the Marias in my life, my, <laughs> my partner Maria and my sister Maria. She was um, saying about the differences in your teenage bedrooms when I asked her when she was when she knew she was gay. She sort of said, "If I visited my teenage bedroom now, I probably could have told my teenage self that I was, but I wasn't really thinking about when it." When you look back, <laughs> yeah. exactly. But I wonder whether her bravery, when you say about the abuse that she endured, was formed or innate, or whether she's had to be latterly for some of those really difficult and horrible reasons. I think it's I think it's pretty innate but I think that um it's been more difficult because of some of those things that have happened um based either either on on, on the fact that she's 
she's been more exposed as an LGBT person. She's been more exposed as somebody who's taking that step, for example, standing for the leadership. And that is a very exposing thing to do, whoever you are. So, I mean, I it was very brave of her to do that. There's no doubt about it. And before we go and get to her, I wonder how, this is a really practical question, but how you cope with those sort of really visceral feelings of, um, like your gorge rises, I, I think, when someone uh, attacks your brother or sister, there's a very kind of physical response that's pure anger. And you must have had those feelings quite a lot over the years. What do you do with them? Do you talk them out with her or do you play chess or go for a run? Or <laughs> how do you deal with that feeling of like, back off, that's my twin? We've always seen sort of supporting each other rather than going out and having a fight with somebody else is the way to do it, I well, think. I wasn't implying you went out and had a fight, but, you know. Well, it probably has been known in the dim distant past, but not for a long time. And Maria describes you as innately brave, but sort of proving just how brave you were during that period. Do you feel brave? Oh, uh... <laughs> I don't regard myself that way. I I, th I think that I've always wanted to be in a position where I can express what I think. And I try not to think about the consequences if I think something's right. Uh, much like her, actually. And finally, are you both hopeful? I know that the number of women in the House of Parliament, you know, continues to rise and we try, don't we? We all try. Are you hopeful for women in representative politics, but also in this country, given what's happened in the last few weeks. Do you feel um, like the progress is being made that you were hoping for? I, I mean, when... No, not as fast as it should be. And, and I think we're going backwards a bit. I think I think that there's a backlash going on that, that's been happening in the last few years and that the pandemic, it looks like, is exacerbating the problems mm. that face women um, in society, you know. The, the abuse that Angela's talked about, that, that she had more and more women involved in public life, uh, uh, they, we get more of this kind of stuff. It puts women off. I mean, if you look, ask younger women now, they say they're not so keen to get involved. And that's dangerous, you know, um, because if women aren't there in the decision-making places, then they get forgotten about and things get rolled back. And we've seen a bit of that with the way this government has done things. I think that, mm. uh, and that's the danger. I think. I think that um, we always have to refight these battles. Uh, I was very involved in the battles within the trade union and labour movement to get women-only shortlists and change mm. our rules to ensure that women had a place in the broader labour movement, and and they do. And that led to the big increase in women's representation in the Labour Party in in 1997. Immediately mocked by the media you just have to be really strong and you have to give each other strength in numbers to carry on and Maria's right there is a backlash now each generation has to fight it anew and just because we haven't won all the old battles it doesn't mean to say we we shouldn't keep trying the thing that strikes me about um, the women that I talk to now young women now they assume that they should have equality. Well, that's a, a that's a good place to start from. Yeah. I think your mum would quite enjoy meeting some of those young women, probably. Oh, yeah. I mean, she'd probably be in Parliament if she'd have lived by now. She would have beaten us both there. <laughs> 
Thank you to Angela and Maria. Thank you too for listening. How do you think she would describe you? I've no idea. Um, she'd still be irritated about my effortless superiority because of my age. <laughs> my 15 minutes, probably. Thank you too to Tanita Tickerham, who let us use this amazing song. Sound design is by Nick Carter at Nick Sonics and digital production by Charlotte Griffiths. Next week, the TV and radio presenter and alumni of the Broom Cupboard, Kirsten O'Brien and her little brother Tim, who talk about medievally violent teenage fights living all over the world and the importance of a damn good laugh with your sibling. If you had a minute to rate, review or share this podcast with your brother or sister, I'd be really grateful. To find out more about it or to see some sweet pictures of Angela and Maria, head to relativelypodcast.com. There's a good tradition of love and hate Staying by the fireside There's a good tradition of love and hate Staying by the fireside Now the rain may fall Your father's calling you You still feel safe inside Only your mom's too proud your brother's ignoring you You still feel safe inside Oh, was it solo? Was it yesterday? Was it true for you? Cause while all the rest have taken time Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.